Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 41 of My Way. Right. So (laughs) I guess the global situation has changed a bit since we last met. Seems there's a bit of flu going around, which is obviously an understatement. And some of you may have heard the term social distancing as a way to lower your risk of contracting the ubiquitous COVID-19. Do I have a safe and totally free social distancing activity for you? (laughs) You can hunker down and listen to all 41 episodes of My Way on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just be sure to Google My Way Podcast and look for the blue and yellow highway logo. My guest this week is Shanine Adams. I first learned about the wonder of Shanine from Facebook. She posts these beautifully honest stories of her life under her husband's account, John Adams. And one of my favorite authors, Maya Angelou, wrote that there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Shanine abides by this truth. And not only does she write, but she sings as well. So this episode is a variety show of conversation, storytelling, and song. Good morning, Sunny. <laughs> Good morning, Shanine. My name is Shanine Adams. Uh, maiden surname is Van Vyck. And I live and have, was born in Boschmanskloof, and now I live in Jevelkroon, Grayton. And what is your first and most vivid memory? Sure. Running around barefoot, <laughs> growing mm. up as a child in Boschmanskloof, playing on the Falkies with the boys on my street, anything from rugby to tennis to dristoki and driblicky, <laughs> mm. <laughs> running around as a feather and just enjoying being a kind van Boswan's With my grandma, she is our matriarch of our family. What grandma says, go. And we grew, we play dominoes today, still every Sunday. Every Sunday we have a um, tradition of playing dominoes at her house. Really? Yeah. And she has taught all of us. Now a th- for third or fourth generation of grandkids around grandma's table. Um, then I'm immediately reminded about the wooden stove that we used to set it in the kitchen, wooden stove is still there. But every morning before school, I needed to pop by grandma's house to get a boiled egg. That's a very horribly softly boiled egg. But for some reason, grandma said it shouldn't be hard boiled, it must be soft. <laughs> and we had to down that every morning before oh. school. But that's fun growing up memories of how we as a family in Boschman's group grew up so closely together mm-hmm. I've got, with so much love. Kids today are a lot more limited than what we ever were. So talk a little bit about your family, your parents, the family that you've created. Hmm. Okay, so today I'm, I'm married 10 years. My husband and I have been together for for 18 years but growing up it was myself and my younger brother and an older brother my older brother is 39 years old and the youngest is 26 
mom and dad always working. We grew up in such a tight, very loving family. The only thing I ever remember about my childhood and my home life was all this love and in the evenings with candles. Those years they went electricity all over. So and the TVs that had batteries that you had have to charge and the screen would go darker, darker as the battery had going to die. Wow. We, yeah, we we had those and <laughs> we would take turns to take that battery downtown to have it filled up again. And then your mom and dad would either say you're restricted to watch TV today because it's like the screen is going smaller and smaller and smaller. And if it dies, it's out. <laughs> it was the craziest way of watching television on the car battery, the car battery. That's amazing. I wonder, I don't know who invented that idea, but that's how we watch TV, black and white. <laughs> and then where would you go get it filled? Um, at the petrol station downtown. I believe Or at the, 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 it was a shop called Underaf, um, which now is a gallery, um, David Clare's gallery opposite OK Mini Market. And then there was another shop um, in the main road opposite, used to be called Smoeswinkel, had quite a few um, other names. Had it fold up there. So, yeah, the supermarkets fold those up mostly. Did a lot of people do that? Everybody did that. And, and we weren't one of the first families to actually get a TV. There were families before us that would be a bit more privileged even then. Yeah. You would be very privileged if you um, were able to um, get a TV. And then kids would brag and say, well, we've got a TV now and you can come and watch TV. But then you had to like pay um, 20 cents or, or so to sit on their carpet and watch TV with them. And then it was a whole celebration when your family actually got a TV. Um, I, obviously, I went to schooling here at Greaton downtown at a school called 8 Cake Primary. And then Yevelkron, we have Greaton Primaire. And then for some reason, my parents, and this is something I, I, used, I told in my storytelling, um, my family decided that to send us to Eight cake. I don't think I ever bothered to really ask them why. Just went there. Um, it was at that time all white school. I was like one out of seven colored kids that attended eight cake school. But I was a kid and I was excited in any case. <laughs> I don't think much of what was going on around me um, mattered much because I was a child and, and we didn't have much concerns. Just went to school. Now, you see, if I start and whenever I go to schooling, it, it sort of brings out something else, and then I don't know whether I should talk about it. So schooling at Cake was um, an interesting change and adjustment for me, coming from Roshman's Kloof. I think mostly the way that the kids spoke, really. I grew up Afrikaans-speaking in Roshman's Kloof, but that was a totally different Afrikaans at Cake. <laughs> They would say Afrikaans and also Afrikaans. Yeah. So that pronunciations and, and getting to um, understand. Somebody can speak in the same language, but it would take you uh, quite a while to really get what they're saying because of it sounds different and then your mind sort of have to figure out what's happening around you. Mm -hmm. So I think for the first year or two at schooling, it was trying to overcome that um, barrier of actually understanding what's being said around you. Yeah. But the teachers and the kids were wonderful. Um, Estelle Hulnevald, that's the principal still today, was actually our principal then as well. Really? Yes. And she is such a kind, kind, kind woman. And everybody at the school, it was a very small group um, before. 
I think about seven teachers. It wasn't a, a, a whole lot of teachers, but they just had like a big um, sense of wanting to help every child that is at the school and making um, any adjustments for us very easy as well. Um, I think I learned a lot, even for a person who I am, um, by the way of immediately uh, adjusting myself to the difference of being in different environment. Mm-hmm. I think that added to obviously who I am and how I might speak today as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So what do you what do you do now as a mother? Like how has that affected your role? What do you try and carry on that you loved about your family? Mm. I would say um, because things and and the path of my life had changed with dreams I had of going to study and do things further that unfortunately didn't come to in, in realization. So I had to go and work quite early as well. And then I had my daughter. Alicia was now seventeen. And even as a working mom, um, young working mother, looking back today and being a stay-at-home mom at this point in my life, looking back now, there's some things that I really missed out on for Alicia, and I'm I'm trying to make up for it as much as I possibly can in the last seven years. Mm. Um, So now um, Alicia obviously is so much older, but for the last few years since I've been at home, I've tried to really reconnect with her on so many levels where every evening when it's bath time for her, we have our mommy and, and daughter time. Yeah. And I and I love the fact that Alicia too feels that um, she can talk to me about anything and everything and we have um, such candid and open conversations and that's one thing I treasure so, so, so much. Yeah. I would sit literally on the toilet port, Alicia, even now at age 17, is in the bath and I'm sitting there and we're chatting. She's telling me about stuff and she's telling me about her day and just talking about things, yeah. asking me questions because I'm all open for to her asking me anything. Mm. And that is something I, I, I talk to her about. I tell her this is one thing that I want you to, doesn't matter what happens in your life forward, Try and have this type of connection or relationship with your own daughter or ch- um, children going forward, because mm-hmm. I definitely don't want to miss out on anything. Yeah. Um, anymore. Talk a little bit about each of your daughters. Mm-hmm. Alicia, as I started out, to say she is such a, she's such a beautiful, beautiful child. She is. Mm, she is. <laughs> and then I get really very, ooh, I get so happy when people say she looks like me. 
Because <laughs> I'm going to have sort of a low, low self-esteem. So when I hear that they said this beautiful teenage girl, she looks like your mom, then I, mm. I smile from ear to ear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Alicia is... Uh, quite an achiever on the sports um, 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 sports fields as well. Even from primary school years, um, she used to play sports and would go as far as Borland, getting Borland colors for certain um, um, sporting events. And even in high school now, playing rugby and netball. Um, I, I love that she's doing that. Mm-hmm. If she's not at school or with after-class activities, then she's at, uh, somewhere on the sports field doing something. And she's such an easy child because I never have to like stand behind her with a lappy and say or a stalk, have you done this? Have you done your homework? Have you done this? We have this a relationship too where I don't nag her. I give her the space to do what she has to do and needs to do. She is actually partly one of the most boring teenagers too. <laughs> She has um, friends coming there calling and, and asking if she wants to go somewhere and she just says no. If she doesn't do anything, then she sleeps. Very boring. Wow. <laughs> um, Alicia also suffers from a very low self-esteem. It's something we we in deep conversation with now. Mm-hmm. Self-esteem in the sense where she really puts herself down so, so, so much. I tell her sometimes that she's her own worst enemy. Yep. Because even with the hecticness of her matric now and she's been having problems with her um, maths and and physical science, Mm. she's just thinking that I'm not going to pass. Her mind's stuck and I'm trying to get her out of that Mm. way of thinking. For so long, and this is something Alicia said to me about two weeks ago. She said to me, Mommy, you know what? I actually feel misled. I said, why? How? Remember when I was much younger and when I would always say, I want to be a doctor one day, I want to be a doctor one day. And then she says to me, but now, mommy, it's not going to happen. So I do feel misled. And I found her statement saying that so profound that I sat quiet for quite some time on the toilet seat. Didn't know what to answer her. I was trying to think of words, what to say to her. And then um, I said to her, you know, I don't know if I should say this, but I think you're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you're right in the sense that we were we were talking for so long and you always said you wanted to be a doctor, be a doctor. But never in my own mind, I don't know why, I said to Alicia, I don't know why it never occurred to me that saying to your, your child from age 12, yes, you can be a doctor, and, and the reality of getting to that step now um, where your matric and grade 11 report was so important to actually be able to achieve that, it never, never dawned on me that, and that's my fault, mommy, sorry. And I, and I said that that's, that's on me. But you do not have to think that it's over. You don't have to think that you cannot be a doctor still. You only need to focus now on your matric. You need to focus on your math and your science now. Your other subjects are perfectly fine. You're such an ace in all of those other things. And you can do it. It's only you that can do it. Let the bursaries and the everything else in universities leave all of that. Yeah. Let's not worry and deal with any of that. Mm. Because one of the things that I do like about a racehorse is the fact that they run their races. And I asked her, do you know what, why the horses have those blinders on? You've got this pattern of how things in life should be. But... 
as a person and as your own human being, you can reach your own goals at your own pace. You need to sort of focus and, and, and on only what you need to do. Leave everything else out. That's why I think the, the horses have those blinders on because they not focus on the person next to yeah. them. They're not worried about getting into the other lane. Yeah. They just have the straight view of what they need to do. So I think it, it means you need to put some blinders on this year. Absolutely. Don't focus on anything else. What you need to also do is open yourself up to the possibilities of reaching that particular goal later in life. Acadia was born in 2012. She has just turned eight. Easy pregnancy. She was a healthy-born baby at four, three months old. Noted that she sort of looked a lot bluer than what she should. Always thinking it's just the wind. So we would just like take turns to try and get the wind out. Later, just took her to um, a doctor for a checkup. So we took her there to, um, to the local practice here in Grayton. It was Dr. Shelley Lutz at the time. Through the examination, she said, Mommy, um, I can hear a murmur. She heard her, um, a heart murmur. So we then were transferred to um, hospitals and she put the ball rolling for us to get her to to one of the specialists at the hospital. When we heard heart murmur, you don't hear things like that all very often in our families. We just don't. If somebody does die of a heart attack, you'll sort of be surprised and hear that guy died of a heart attack. Not even knowing that there could have been previous heart problems. Because unfortunately, people in our culture, we don't tend to check up on th certain things um, like that or as we should. So Akedia was then um, diagnosed with having Tritalogia fallow, which is a narrowed heart valve, which explained why she turned blue. Even at this, just breastfeeding or drinking a bottle or any sort of um, exercise that a baby would do, lifting her arms or getting all excited about something, she would turn blue and later point actually faint and pass out. Mm. Went to Red Cross and did the necessary tests and then it was um, said that she'll have a heart operation at the age of one year old because they then needed to widen that heart valve. She started to have that type of episodes where she turned blue and passed out way too often and we rushed back up and down to Red Cross again and the operation was moved from one year, age one year to eight months. Had an emergency heart operation at age eight months, baby. Yeah, she has a, a long wall scar, open heart surgery. It was by far the longest seven hours of my life. <laughs> because one of the craziest things that they do is they make you sign these forms and it reads out very clear that one out of a hundred children with the same heart defect will be operated today. One out of ten out of these children will die on the operation table. And then you have to sign that. <laughs> Signing that was probably the hardest thing I ever had to do. After that operation, and we're still going back and forth for um, tests and, and, and checkups. Um, early teen, 12, 12 from 12, 14, she'll most likely get a new um, operation because then they'll completely put in a new valve. Oh, then they'll wow. remove the heart valve and put in a different valve. First off, because she was so young, her body so wouldn't tiny. have... So yeah. tiny. Yeah. They only widened that, putting in a synthetic piece. Because now what happens, they said, that the synthetic piece that they put in won't stretch as much over the years 
because you grow in everything. Doesn't matter what tiny piece or organ you have, it it, it grows and stretches. But as she gets older and more active, going into the early teen years, running and sports and whatever else, it means your heart rate will increase more. Because that valve piece won't stretch with the other breast of the part, Mm -hmm. it will have to be replaced. Replaced. But that they only schedule for much later in the child's life. Um, We thought that was it, but then we started noticing uh, she wasn't really as active as any other baby would be um, with starting to crawl or trying to sit up on her own, all those milestones. But then the doctors assured us at that point in time and the clinic sisters that do remember the development for a child takes place within the first six to eight months of their life. But because she was so ill and sick and always with this heart that limited her to even like breastfeed or lift or open her eyes, mm-hmm. putting so much strain on her, she did nothing for that first year of her life, basically. So when she didn't start moving much or doing or saying anything from year to two years old, we started to get worried that something might be off a bit. She started crawling at two and walking at four. Started to speak her first words at five, six years old. My daughter's only been talking for three years. The later she was diagnosed with autism, level two. That came about after we noted that she had self-harming behaviors. Oh my goodness, she would give herself a nosebleed. She would bite, she bites, she, she still does it. She bites herself. Her fingertips, she doesn't just bite her nails, she actually bites her fingertips until they bleed. She bites her arms, she bites her legs, she bites anything. She'll bite you. Kids um, with autism, they're unable to really express what they're feeling, albeit a verbal um, um, communication delay that's adding to that, Mm. or just making sense of what's going on in their mind and their surroundings. Mm. They're unable to really express that, so they tend to then into a habit of self-harming behavior which is very harmful to themselves and to others, others. yeah a kid doesn't feel pain at all she oh. doesn't once at four four years old she fell and banged her head when she fell and, and and looked up she had a big dent in her forehead there's still a black mark from where the blood had thickened it went in it was like an instant dent at age four she just got up and ran. Didn't want us to pick her up, and and she didn't cry. She doesn't cry. Even now she falls and scrapes her knees and arms and elbows and everything. She doesn't feel it. She doesn't cry, which makes it so so dangerous because she doesn't feel that she cannot relate to I am hurting you or I'm hurting my friend. Right. And we're reminding ourselves every time, even with the diaper changes at eight. That's one of the things I hate most doing because she's so tall and now her legs is like and kicking and all of that. Um, and I'm thinking, but she must probably hate it so much more than I do. Because why would she, if she had a choice, why would she at eight wear diapers still? And then people say, you need to potty train her. And then it sounds like I'm making all of these things up because now I will have to go back and say, it's not about just getting potty trained. Have you heard of a condition called spina bifida occulta? Mm-hmm. That is now causing nerve damage to her spine and bladder control. Mm. She's a running tap with no way to switch it off because she doesn't have nerve control over bladder and bowel movements. And it was we were told that an operation to lift that bone from her nerve in her spine, to consider doing that 
as opposed to just her not having any control over bladder and bowel movements, yeah. it's way too high. The risk is way too high of then actually leaving her paralyzed. So add that to a child with autism, and if you read up about autistic kids, that is also a challenge, mm-hmm. just generally having to potty train any autistic child. Going back to when you were a kid, did you have sort of dreams about what you wanted to do when you were a grown-up? <laughs> yeah. I wanted to be a performer and sing. Mm. So to date, Leon Schuster, I'm his biggest fan. Mm. I actually got an opportunity not too long ago to go and audition for a show that that his son was hosting. And I so wanted to go and if I can just meet his son, then somehow I will get to Leon Schuster. But yeah. then something happened, I didn't go. But I wanted to sing and I wanted to perform. And strangely enough, it's something that I am getting the opportunity to do now, many years later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how are you getting to do that? I'm through, okay, I keep on getting to saying um, about low self-esteem, but I actually do have one, a very huge one, that was brought on by a very unhappy um, situation at primary school mm-hmm. that then changed my view of myself and who I am. Hey, it's me again. I just wanted to preface the next bit. When I asked Janine if she could write a story about this incident that changed the course of her life, she said, unsurprisingly, that she had already written it. And I asked if she would share it with us. So, here it goes. One night, while watching Burlesque for the very first time, I thought, wow, what an amazing movie. I sat on the edge of the couch. It was the Sunday evening. I was cold, but I didn't want to miss anything. The singing and dancing sent shivers down my spine, but for more reasons than the obvious. It took me back to a time when I was only 12 years old. I had high hopes and dreams of performing on stages worldwide back then. I was at school, I was doing music lessons, singing solo soprano, and just having a ball. Twenty years later, I'm haunted by the what-ifs of the past. I was attending a local primary school, I was happy, I was enjoying life, and I was content with who I was and where I came from. I knew where I was going. One afternoon, everything changed. Everything I knew about my life changed. I changed. A few boys in my class decided that on this day they would pull the rug from right under me. They would burst my bubble or cut me down to size. Till this day I actually still don't know what exactly they thought, but this is what they did. They threw a piece of paper on my desk, eagerly gesturing for me to read it alone. Curiously I read the note stunned at the content my heart skipping a beat, 12-year-old Janine, with this letter in her hand. I like you very much, was the first phrase on this letter, and I think we should sit together at break time. Would you please be my partner at the upcoming Socky? That is all the note said, and it was signed hugs and kisses. At first I laughed, I was convinced they were joking, but as I looked up they were smiling, holding up thumbs and making all sorts of gestures. I think my heart skipped a beat, a bit excited, but I never thought of any of them in any way like that, 
but I still felt flattered, and I replied with a simple sure. Skillfully, I returned the note to them and watched in anticipation as a second note made its way to me. To this day, I still remember everything about their letter. It's edged in my mind, my soul, and it ripped through every part of me. It was written in Afrikaans. Jou lelike, lelike swaard etter meid. Wat laat jou dink dat ons ooit aan jou sal belangstel? Have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror lately? Jy is by ver die lelikste ding op aarde. You are by far the ugliest thing we have ever seen. In the center they drew this spider-like thingy with arrows pointing towards the text and words saying this is you. Numb and in utter disbelief I looked up. I was confused. I tried to make sense of what had happened. Perhaps I was dreaming, but no, this was real. They were pointing at me and they were laughing. I looked at the letter down again, now shaking in my hands as big teardrops filled the empty spaces. Every phrase embedded in my mind, the words piercing through every fiber of my being. I stood up and I walked out of the classroom. Till this day, I cannot remember why I didn't run. I walked and their laughter followed me. I stood in the bathroom in front of the mirror and cried. I cried like someone who had just lost a loved one. Time stood still. It was just me, those boys and their letter. Through my tears I no longer recognized the young girl in the bathroom mirror looking back at me. I could only see what they saw, this thing. I could only hear their laughter and it consumed me. I lost the person I was when I went to school that morning. On off days, I mourn her. I saw myself through their eyes and it hurt. I never told anyone what had happened, not a teacher nor my parents, and I never ever confronted them. I went back to school four days later, a different person. They changed me and the course of my life. I went to high school, which was pure torture, even more unimaginable than I could have ever thought. I had not realized that their laughter had followed me to the corridors of high school. There were more kids, gorgeous popular girls, and then there was me, this thing. I was in hell, a nightmare created by those boys on a lazy afternoon. Each time a group of kids would walk past me, not even looking in my direction, and if they would laugh, I had convinced myself that they were laughing at me. I couldn't take it anymore. So I quit school. I actually came to a point where I needed to make a decision and decide. I would kill myself or I will just leave. So I dropped out of school and decided to leave all of them behind. Sometimes I still mourn the child I was. I still mourn the 12-year-old Shunin that went to school that morning. I still mourn the dreams I had. I regret not finishing my matric not attending my matric ball. But most of all, I regret not telling anyone what they have done to me. I regret not telling anybody what had happened on that faithful afternoon. Maybe things would have been different if I had. Who knows? But today I'm only sharing my story to make people realize that there's a lot going on beyond what you see in a person. And if we all try to do things differently, if we think differently, and strive to be better people, 
Because what we need to realize is that your actions may just change the course of someone's life. It might even be for better, but it might even be for worse. Teach kids to embrace the difference they see in others. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned a little bit more about yet another very special Greytonian. Rilke wrote, go into yourself, find out the reason that commands you to write, see whether it has spread roots into the very depths of your heart. Confess to yourself whether you would have to die if you were forbidden to write. This most of all, ask yourself in the most silent hour of your night, must I write? Writing and telling stories, in particular our stories, is a path to healing ourselves. And I believe that if you're brave enough to be vulnerable and share your stories, you have the potential to help others find healing as well. And because I can't resist, I wanted to share a quick bit of history on the song at the beginning of the episode. Many South Africans are familiar with the folk song, Dar Kom Diali Bama. However, I am not South African, and I thought, huh, Alibama sounds a lot like Alabama. And you know, through the power of online research, I quickly discovered that the entire song is about the arrival of a commerce raider, the CSS Alabama, to the city of Cape Town in 1863. And it was built in secret the year before in Liverpool, England, of all places, as the British had a vested interest in keeping the cotton high in the southern U.S., which meant supporting the Confederate Army and upholding slavery. In fact, most of the crew of the Alabama was British. Right before the Alabama came to get refitted and reprovisioned in Cape Town, She was in my neck of the woods, just off the southeast coast of Texas in the Gulf of Mexico, and she was laying siege to one of over 60 Union merchant ships it took down in her short two-year career. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on iTunes. This is a huge help for the podcast, and it only takes a moment to scroll down and click the number of stars you think it deserves. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates. See you next time.